Well, let's begin with a prayer together. You stand with me. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in every shadow. Amen. Um, I don't know if I've shown you this little little prayer book. We, we just got a bunch of them in the bookstore. It's a little pocket prayer book. It's called the Pocket Prayer Book for Orthodox Christians. And it's a good basic one to use. I keep it in my pocket all the time. It has simple morning and evening prayers. And especially for people who don't have a rhythm of morning and evening prayer, if you're new to Orthodoxy especially and you want to know where to begin, this is a good place to begin. And then through conversation and spiritual counsel with me, I can help focus prayers and certain disciplines that you might need to do. But it has morning prayers, evening prayers, occasional prayers for different times, like prayer for the acceptance of God's will, prayer at the commencement of any task, prayer for success in studies. Here's one that some people like, prayer to find a spouse, prayer in time of trouble, prayer of repentance, and so on. And then there's actually a little guide to help with preparation for confession. It takes you through the Ten Commandments and kind of asks some questions and provides a little guidance. Has the text of the Divine Liturgy and a couple other things, like the fasting days and seasons are indicated in the back. And um, So it's handy. It's nice. I always keep it in my pocket just in case I need it for any particular reason. Prayer book in, in my right side pocket, little pocket Bible in the other side, so that I'm without excuse. Doesn't it doesn't have it just has the New Testament in the Psalms. It doesn't have the Old Testament, so but it's really nice. So and then I always have a prayer rope with me too. So let's get started. Today we're going to be talking about the promised Messiah of Israel, and then hopefully a little bit about the way we read the Holy Scriptures in discussing what's called typology. God chose the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, who is the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. When God expelled Adam and Eve from paradise, he made clear to them the consequences of their sin. And we tend to put an emphasis in, in the church on the consequences of our sin rather than like the retribution maybe that comes from God. You know, we, God, God allows us to, to endure the consequences of 
the decisions that we've made, but he also frees us from being bound by them too. Otherwise, we would all be hell-bound. So the use of language of certain words is very, very important. When you're talking about God, when you're talking about what you believe, you don't have to be perfect. There is no perfect language. You know, the fathers of the church often say that the only way to perfectly um, approach God is with, with the language of silence. Because words are, are always subject to interpretation. But at the same time, there is place for a certain intentionality and precision in, the, in our speech. For example, I was talking to someone recently who said, I'm going to be out of town. Um, can I take Holy Communion at this other church I'm at? And I lovingly said, we never take Holy Communion. We only receive it. It's important to think about that. And not that she had an ill intent by asking. She was being very respectful and, you know, deferential in a way and um, humble. But it's one of those little subtleties, like if you understand what you're saying and you mean what you're saying, um, you can go deeper by being a little more precise at times. So I would, I would say that it's important for us to use the language of receiving from God rather than taking from God. How can I take anything? I can't. I can only receive what's been given to me. And same with the word consequence. You know, it's very important for us to understand that the condition that we are in, the human condition, is a result of the it's a is a result of the sins of humanity and it's the consequence of our sin. Yet in the midst of what was an otherwise bleak day for mankind, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise. God made a promise which held out the hope for the future redemption and salvation of the human race. Speaking to the serpent who had deceived Eve, God said, and I'm going to read from a different translation that's in our text. In our text, we have the King James Version, which doesn't always read as smoothly, so I'm going to read from the New King James Version, which is the same in most places. It's the same as the Orthodox Study Bible. So God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed or offspring and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, we have to exercise our ability to to read and understand. One of my friends who's an excellent teacher who teaches college classes I don't know if I've told you guys this, but he says one of the biggest challenges he sees among young people is um, that they're essentially Ill illiterate. People read, but they don't comprehend because of the way that we approach reading these days, mostly reading headlines, skimming things. And so we need to, if, if we're approaching at least uh, with some seriousness, we're approaching matters of truth and of God, of reality, then we're not going to approach it like uh, consumers, you know, who are sampling everything that's out there. We're going to slow down. We're going to learn how to read and, you could say, explicate a little bit. What does this mean? And we can't 
be stifled if we don't immediately understand something that we've read. What does that mean? Uh, I don't know. It's just a bunch of anachronistic, hullabaloo, religious nonsense or something like that. Maybe it's not the text that is full of a lot of nonsense. Maybe it's my head that's full of a lot of nonsense. Maybe I need to slow down and listen and understand. As I, as I like to say, rather than reading the scripture in a way, being read by the scripture. So he says this interesting thing about this, the serpent and the seed of Eve. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And here we have the first indication that God was not about to lead. Excuse me. This is from Genesis 3, by the way, too. Genesis 3.15. So we have the first indication that God was not about to let sin and death have the last word. He promised that one day the seed of Eve threw himself, excuse me, the seed of Eve, though himself bruised by the attacks of the devil, would crush the head of the serpent forever and destroy the dominion of sin and death, which holds mankind in its sway. So this idea of the bruising of the head actually means a, a death blow rather than the bruising of the heel, which would be uh, not a mortal wound. So this, however, did not happen overnight. Mankind at this point was not yet ready to receive its Savior. The way had to be prepared. Man's mind and heart, darkened by sin and self-centeredness, had to be trained. And here, once again, the word of God and recognize his presence in the world. It was not until this was accomplished at the fullness of time, quoting from Galatians 4, the fullness of time at the appropriate time, that God sent forth his only begotten son into the world to become man for us. And this task of preparation began with a man named Abraham. So we read from Genesis 12, this. Now the Lord said to, said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. According to the promise of God, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, became the father of a great nation. And that's, that is the people of Israel. Through this nation, God would prepare the world for the coming of his son. And in this way, all the peoples of the world, not just the Jews, would be blessed by God. When Abraham's descendants were being held in slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to deliver the people of God and lead them into the land that God had promised to their forefathers. The night before the Israelites were freed, the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt and slew the firstborn males of both man and beast. Only the Israelites who had slain a lamb and spread its blood on their doorpost escaped this judgment of God. This event became known as the Exodus, and it's commemorated every year by the Jews at the Feast of Passover. It's mentioned in Exodus 11 and 12. There's much more, however, to this event than the deliverance of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians. This event is also a type of foreshadowing of the deliverance which Christ would one day bring to all mankind. Christ himself is our Paschal or Passover lamb, slain for the salvation of the world. 
By his blood, we are all delivered from the bondage of sin, from corruption and death. Having brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, Moses led them to Mount Sinai, where he received from God the Ten Commandments and instructions for proper worship. So through the law, also called the Torah in Hebrew, Israel came to know the true God and learned how men ought to live with one another. The basic creed of Israel is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. From Deuteronomy 6.4. Most ancient peoples, and not a few modern ones, were polytheistic. That's, that is, they believed in multiple gods. And Israel, however, was taught that there was one and only one God. Furthermore, she was taught that this one God was the creator of heaven and earth. There were hierarchies of, of their beliefs. And I'm tempted to say that even people who claim to be monotheists these days are polytheists because a lot of times we believe that there's a God out there somewhere, but the God that we're most fixated on is the God called uh, me. <laughs> you know, and it's very hard for us to break free from that, uh, that kind of polytheism. I have a question. Yeah. So, kind of my understanding of the idea of angels and principalities and powers and all those things is that it's not that the pagan gods don't exist as spiritual forces in the world. It's mm-hmm. that there's one god above all other gods. Mm-hmm. And in the evangelical tradition that was raised in, there's kind of lip service to angels and demons and things, but it's not really an understanding of that as much. It's mm-hmm. kind of just a, um, there's God and that's it, versus yep. my understanding of the way the Orthodox view is that there are those other spiritual forces, but then above all of that. Like the gods that were worshipped before, they do exist, but they're... They do exist. They're 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 Correct. So like the difference between the saints... Look up the word, go to it. I like... I like the use of biblical concordances for this, you know, for, you know, using Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or something like that. Look up the word gods, you know, go into, go into a, Bible, a biblical concordance and just type in the word G-O-D-S, gods, and you, you'll see quite an amazing thing. It doesn't say our God is above all other gods and then it doesn't say, but they aren't really gods. They knew what they were talking about. They were talking about powers. They were talking about things that were real that actually had influence. And authority, yeah. It wasn't just some figment of their, you know, of uh, people's imaginations. But that's right. If they, were, but if they're not serving God, then they're uh, in opposition to God. And so that's that's where this unseen warfare is taking place. That very few of us. We were talking about this the other day. Most people in our day and age, we would rather be materialistic. It's much easier to limit ourselves to a perception of the material world. And we fail, therefore, to, to have that awareness of the metaphysical and the unseen world. That's one of the faculties that, that has atrophied, you could say, in people's lives. But there isn't a, you know, what, what has happened is we've created an artificial distinction between the, the, the physical and the spiritual world. But there aren't two worlds. There's just one world. I'm just enslaved to one of them, you know, you could say, or, or more, more focused on one. I think th- this, uh, this concept is 
fleshed out a little bit in Father Stephen Freeman's book called The Single Story, Life in the Single Story Universe or something like that. And he basically says it, there's this artificial idea that there's kind of this, this higher life and a lower life or there's a separation between physical and material, but there really is only one existence. And in Christ, the artificial distinction between the physical and the spiritual has been reunited between the created and the uncreated, you could say. And so you're right. It's not... Uh, now, you, there are, undoubtedly, there are gods, so to speak. And if you, if you look this up in the Bible, you will see. It's always written like this, <laughs> with a lowercase g, gods. And there are, there are undoubtedly gods, so to speak, that are figments of people's imagination. I mean, that, that, that are a result of people's delusions. But there are, there are also gods that are um, spirits. Could you, um, I'll try to say this as concisely as I can, but if the idea of the saint is that it's a, um, a person who has come close to God, but they, they point you higher up to God, so they're not like an end in themselves. Mm-hmm. So they function in the space that a fallen angel was supposed to, but they function properly because they lead you back to Christ. Then with the fallen angel, the idea is that it starts to accept worship unto itself and try to claim itself as the end and put itself in the highest seat. Um, I don't know if there's anywhere biblically with this, but how exactly is it that an angel would follow that? Is it the actions of the people? Is it the actions of the angel itself? I don't really understand that. How would an angel fall? Um, we could probably open up to another like session at some point to talk more about angels and their fall. Um, but it's generally, to put it very like simply, it's uh, out of out of jealousy and pride for God, rather than understanding that they that they get to be a, have a share in God's the, the the life that God has created, which is the life of love and participation and all that is good, there is a desire to um, to own it, like you said, have their existence be some kind of end in itself, and so then they end up in this endless you know futile toil against God rather than participating in the very life of God. And that's, you know, the ultimate delusion because there's there's no way. There's no way that they're going to gain, they're gonna, not going to usurp the source of all of life and existence and meaning. And so I heard someone say something very profound once uh, about the relationship between God and demons and people created in the image of God. That God created us to to be in communion with Him, to experience the you know life in God. Now those jealous demons can't. It's not like they can reach out and punch God or hurt God's feelings or get to God. God is impassable. God is untouchable in a way by that which is below him. And so 
the way that they get to God is through influencing the lives of those whom he created to be in communion with him. So by pulling us away, because God longs, we would say God God longs for nothing more than to be in communion with you and I for all of eternity. The only way that you could maybe cause sorrow in in a manner of speaking to God is by convincing someone that they want something other than communion with God for all of eternity, especially to try to turn them against God. And I would say, you know, in... In every way, every rejection against God is some kind of fall into idolatry. It's always a worship of something other than God, which is what idolatry is. So it's the elevation of one's own desires or will, passion, or superstition, you know, fall into superstition, that I need, if I, if I do the right things, then I will get the, the outcome that I desire. That's why, like the, the health and wealth gospel, have you guys ever heard of that? There's this, it's, gospel is a misnomer. It really isn't a gospel at all. But it's a teaching that if you, if you do everything the right way, if you live, if you give the right amount of money, especially is what they're kind of famous for. If you support this preacher who's telling you that you will be blessed by God, if you, if you bless me with supporting my ministry, that he will multiply your income and you will have a healthy and wealthy life. And really that is just a big fat form of superstition and, uh, and idolatry, you know. And it's very confusing because these people are preaching what St. Paul would call another gospel, a gospel other than the one that's actually presented in the scriptures that Whosoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, you know, Christ said. Not, if they persecuted me, then just believe in me and you will have a nice feather bed and and, and a, a big mansion or something like that. And then the manipulation comes in that if if you don't get blessed, you know, there's this funny, again, consumeristic kind of language. If you don't get blessed, then you're doing something wrong. It's your fault, which is just an ultimate form of manipulation. That also happens in the charismatic movement where people, if they don't get slain by the Spirit and they're not speaking in tongues, they're told you must have some hidden or unaddressed sin. You know, and it's, a very, it's very manipulative. And it plays on people's desire. See, people deeply, people are, are they're drawn into these experiences because they really do want what's best. They really want what's best. So it's not helpful for me to sit back and go, look at how stupid these people are. You know what I mean? I, mean, I can criticize the teachings. I can say, this, isn't, this is another gospel. But also, your heart has to break for the people who are being influenced by these, these movements because it is a desire, a deep desire for something real a direct experience of God, who doesn't want to be blessed by God. Now, for us, the blessing is to, to give up our life and to, to love others and, you know, to not necessarily make a name for ourselves. One of the things, I could talk about the saints and the idea of saints all day, but I can tell you that none of these saints really want their picture on the wall. You know what I mean? They didn't do it in order to get their picture on the wall. 
to be on the, in the Christian Hall of Fame or something like that. We put their picture on, their wall, on the wall because we, we honor their example. We honor their manner of living. But if I were to ask St. George, you know, should I, should, I, should I put your pick up on the wall, you know, as an example? He would probably say, no, put someone else's. You know what I mean? Or if he did, it would be out of custom, you know, out of like loyalty to tradition and custom. Okay, if that's what is best, then do it. But the saints are not there to bear witness to themselves. One of the definitions of holiness that I like to, or comments I like to make on holiness is that holiness is not something that bears witness to itself. Like you said, it's always pointing to God. So if someone, if someone is inspiring you in some way, um, don't, don't turn them into a kind of orthodox you know, celebrity or an idolize that person. Uh, be inspired to worship the God whom they worship, to serve the God whom they serve, which is always the intent between every, any, behind any good work. We hear in the scripture, um, oh, what is the passage? My mind is... What is the passage? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not that they... It doesn't say that they may see your good works. Boop. Period. No. And glorify your Father who's in heaven. It's kind of like that story I told you guys a while back where a priest visited a church and it said, over the, over the archway, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Do you remember this story? That you love one another. And he went, hmm. So this visiting priest talked to the pastor of that church and he goes, that, that's not right. And the guy goes, well, I mean, it's from the Bible. And he goes, mm, but it's, that's not actually what the scripture says. Well, well, what do you mean? Well, I'm not the one who put it there. It was the guy who was before me. And he goes, he goes there's nothing wrong with that line, but it finishes like this, even as I have loved you. Not just that you love one another and enjoy one another's embrace and fellowship. But even as I have loved you, which is the ultimate you know, sacrificial love, without a fear of losing one's own life. So, okay, I got a little off, um, out of place here. So where did I leave off? I don't know. I think, I, I think I'm at, you will recall, I just read about the Shema. Right. So you will recall that the source of all of man's trouble was, was his attempt to make himself into God apart from the only true and living God. I'm tempted to go do another tangent. I won't. In the law of Moses, however, God made it perfectly clear that he alone is God and that he will admit no rivals. Uh, the first of the Ten Commandments states this, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am. And that language of, of I am is a language of um, existence, of, uh, of being, of stating being. I am. 
And when, when he said, I am, it would imply that none other is. None other is as I am. Thus, in electing Israel as his own people, God brought her to the knowledge of himself. It was his desire that she learn to do his will in all things, so that one day Israel might bring forth her most perfect fruit. The one who in perfect love and purity of heart would surrender her whole being to God and become a vessel worthy to bear the Son of God in the flesh. The most blessed Virgin Mary is therefore the final and consummate act in God's program of preparation. Her inviolate womb comes, excuse me, from her inviolate womb comes forth the Messiah of Israel, the one who in his flesh is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to Israel and to the world. Everything which happened to the people of Israel was a preparation for Christ. Everything points to his coming and his work of salvation. Specifically, however, there are three offices which are singled out in particular as being messianic. That is the offices which specifically point to the person and work of Christ. They are prophet, priest, and king. I want to use my whiteboard since I have it. Prophet, priest, and king. The first of these offices is that of prophet. Unfortunately, many people equate prophecy with fortune-telling. The word, however, actually means to speak forth. It means to declare the truth of the Lord. So it doesn't mean to tell the future. The future, speaking of the things that are to come, is sometimes used as as a warning to people who are living in a certain way. But it doesn't have to do with telling the future. It has to do with speaking the truth. So a true prophet is someone who speaks the truth even despite the word that the people would like to hear. A prophetic voice is the one that, it's like that fish that's swimming upstream when everyone else is going, uh, flowing down the stream, caught up in the current. And so when the prophets spoke to Israel, they were not engaging in a, in a carnival sideshow, but were proclaiming the message of God's love and salvation. They weren't doing it. You know, any act of, of prophecy, of truth, of holiness is not, again, merely an attention getter. Sometimes God had them act in certain ways that drew attention, but that wasn't the point, again, not to draw attention to themselves but to get people to listen to the word of the Lord. And you hear the formula over and over in the writings of the prophets, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. So they were trying to proclaim the message of God's love and salvation. And this was true even when they were rebuking the people of Israel for their sins and faithlessness. When the prophets attacked the hypocrisy of Israel, They were trying to reveal the inner essence of the law. That inner essence and meaning is none other than Christ himself, the Son of God. It is Christ, the eternal word and wisdom of the Father, who is the purpose and content of the law of Moses. However, the prophets point to Christ not only by announcing prophecies concerning him, but by simply being prophets, people who proclaim the word of God, people who speak the truth regardless of the cost to them. 
and we heard about it in the book of Hebrews. They were, they were put, many of them were tortured and put to death on account of speaking the truth. But their greatest freedom came in not preserving their own life, but in bearing witness to life itself. That's very, very important. By proclaiming the word of God in their time, they pointed to the word, the logos of God himself, who would become man and reveal God to mankind in the most perfect way. We have a little quote from Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. The second messianic office is that of priest. When God gave the law to Moses, he also gave him specific instructions for proper worship, including instructions for the priesthood. The most important function of the priest was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Once a year, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. These sacrifices, however, had to be repeated, for they were unable to heal the great wound caused by sin and raise mankind up again to the likeness of its heavenly archetype. Their purpose was to point to the one who is both perfect priest and sacrifice. We have another kind of a long quote from Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. It goes like this. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Remember, it was just pointing to what is real, but not, but not the fulfillment in and of itself. Can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The third messianic office is that of king. Originally, Israel did not have a king, or rather she had God for her sovereign. But in an effort to, to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, uh, Israel ins insisted on having a king. We want a king just like everyone else does. As if God was not a good enough king. Oh, Lord have mercy. Her first king, Saul, turned out to be a tyrant, but his successor, David, was a man after God's own heart. 
Although David was certainly not perfect, his kingship became a type of the kingship of Christ. The word type could also mean like an image or foreshadowing. Indeed, Jesus' human lineage is traced from David. The New Testament begins with the words in Matthew 1, the book of the generation of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is the author of many of the hymns contained in the book of Psalms. Many of these Psalms refer not only to David, but to the Messiah who would sit on David's throne. For example, in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 7, we hear, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word um, anointed can also be translated as Christ. Christos just means anointed one. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. Every aspect of the life of the people of Israel points beyond itself to Christ. Apart from him, Israel is just an ancient culture alongside other ancient cultures. What makes Israel special is the fact that she existed not for her own sake, but for the sake of God and his Christ. And in doing so, Israel existed for the sake of the whole world, for every people and land, through the descendant of Abraham, a son of the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, Every nation of the world has been blessed. And then we've got a couple quotes from the fathers. The fathers speak. St. Ephraim the Syrian says, The lyre, do you know what a lyre is? O-Y-R-E. It's a string instrument. The lyre of the prophets who proclaimed him, singing before him, and the hyssop of the priests who loved him, Hyssop is a branch that was used for blessing, water blessings. Eagerly desiring his presence and the diadem of kings who handed it down. What's a diadem? Crown. Yeah, I didn't. We always sang that in an old hymn when I was growing up, and I never knew what it was when I was a little kid, 12 years old. What's a diadem? It's a cool sounding word, though. The diadem of kings who handed it down in succession belonged to this Lord of virgins, for even his mother is a virgin. He who is king gives the kingdom to all. He who is priests gives pardon to all. He who is the lamb gives nourishment to all. Let his mother worship him. Let her offer him a crown. For Solomon's mother made him king and crowned him. He apostatized and lost his crown in battle. Behold the son of David who glorified and crowned the house of David. For you have greatly magnified his throne. You have greatly exalted his tribe. And his lyre you have extended everywhere. Any time we hear the term, like the reference to musical instruments and things, where most of the time it's a reference to uh, the proclamation of what is uh, of what is being said. Like uh, many of the saints, for example, are referred to as like uh, the harp of the Holy Spirit, you know, as if they're like a plectrum played by God you know, to reveal the beauty of God. So when you hear that language, 
you think of someone who is bringing forth something beautiful and true for the sake of the people's benefit. And then St. Nicholas Cavasilos says, even though in scripture there were many righteous men and friends of God before the coming of the justifier and reconciler Christ, we ought to consider this both in particular, excuse me, in the particular context of their own generation and also with reference to what that which was to come. It was for this that they were enabled and prepared, that when the light of the world shined, they would see it. And when the reality had been disclosed, they would rise above the types and shadows. So I'll comment a little bit for a second, because some of that sounds a little technical, and it kind of is. And it's to give you an idea. It's not to give you an Old Testament education. Um, and I, one of the things that I would emphasize here is we're making the point that there was a preparation for, in an, for, for Christ. There was a time between the fall of the creation and the fall of mankind. And you could say the restoration a recapitulation of humanity in Christ. And during those times, the most, one of the most important devices that we use in reading the Old Testament is identifying the longing there that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You can find that everywhere. You can find if you think it's, it might be a reference to Christ, then it, is, then it probably is. Because Christ is the fulfillment of every longing, every taste of truth, you know, every desire. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about, about, about this when we discuss uh, typology in a minute. But in practical terms, I would say that most people who are approaching the Bible shouldn't dive right into the Old Testament. Most people who are reading the Bible should start with reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you can note there, when you're reading those, there are references to the Old Testament. And through reading the Gospels, we're given an interpretive lens, you could say, through which to understand aspects of the Old Testament. But you can see how Christ and the authors, primarily St. Paul of the, of the New Testament, how they use the Old Testament, you could say, or how they read the Old Testament. And how they, they see the, that Christ is the fulfillment of what is being referred to throughout the, the whole of the Old Testament. Um, but most people need to begin their Christian journey and cultivate their Christian life of, through the reading of the Gospels and the New Testament. And it gets a little dicey sometimes when you get into like uh, into the book of Revelation even. So maybe your first time through, you don't even read, you know, the, the book of Revelation. Give yourself a couple times through the Old Testament. But start there. And I always recommend reading the Orthodox Study Bible. And it has simple little notes that are, that are easy enough. You're not going to become a biblical scholar by reading the Orthodox Study Bible. 
you know. I mean, sometimes the, the notes in the Orthodox Study Bible just kind of repeat what was said, you know, in the text. So um, if, you want, if you want to go deeper in any Bible study, let me know and I can share some resources with you. But be careful not to grab anything and everything because everyone has their own interpretive uh, lens. The Protestants have certain presuppositions that they bring into the reading of the scripture and they, they read it into the Bible. Um, the Catholics, the same way, and the Orthodox too. We all have an agenda, you could say. Each one has their own tradition and it's impossible to, to separate one's interpretation of scripture from his or her presuppositions. Even the Bible has its own presuppositions. That what's written there took place at a certain place in a certain time, in a cultural and historical context, written in a language by a certain person and not another person. So there are things that, that have to be taken in, into consideration. And, of course, where did the Bible come from? <laughs> it came from a group of bishops you know, who decided that this is what the New Testament in particular is, but this is what the Bible is. You know, it took several hundred years. So I won't get into the formation of the scripture right now, but my point is that um, it's, if, you, if you want to read it from within the, the tradition of the church, and one of the best ways to do that is, and I, met, I mentioned this to you guys a couple of sessions ago, through um, being in the church too and hearing the hymns, hearing the homilies and the hymns and reading the writings of who we refer to as the fathers of the church. Notice how they use the scriptures. Notice how they interpret the scripture. And then with time, you'll develop through familiarity a more natural ability to, to read the Bible. But there are certain books especially in the Old Testament, if you really want to dig into them, they would need to be studied. It would need to be a study. You're not just going to casually read Leviticus or Numbers, probably, you know, for example. And same with Revelation. That would be a tough one. You're, you're probably not going to do yourself too much harm if you simply read it. But if you try to read it and start interpreting it on your own, then that can lead you into some funny uh, directions. So there are some commentaries on that. Like we have a five volume commentary downstairs on the book of Revelation. Wow. Written by a, a, a contemporary Orthodox priest who put it all together. And so um, so you might, might want to give yourself a few years before you dive into that. But number one is reading the Gospels. Second, you know, Gospels and the New Testament writings of of St. Paul, the Acts of the Apostles, the letters of St. Paul, and the New Testament epistles in general. And then also gaining some familiarity with the Psalms, too, is a good way to get to know the Old Testament. There will be some things that you understand and then other things that you have to uh, pass by. And with time, with immersion, you'll start to, I think, gain... Uh, a deeper understanding. And there are a lot of resources on the Psalms too. But Gospel, New Testament, Psalms, that's where I would tell most people that, to put their emphasis. But if anyone wanted a simple reading plan and they were new to Orthodoxy or even new to Christianity, I would just say, 
open up the Orthodox Study Bible and start with the Gospel of Matthew. And just slowly work your way through. Maybe a chapter or a little less even than that at a time. And be patient with yourself. Barbara sent me on my phone a study uh, agenda to study the book, the Orthodox uh-huh. Old and New Testament. Yeah. It was like a snippet of Genesis. Oh, yeah. Like read the Bible in a year kind of thing. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then a psalm, which is so organized. And yeah. Like, yeah. And that, I do have that posted on the website, mm-hmm. yeah. like in our resource library, it's called on the website. And it's, I don't know if it's read the Bible in a year or something like yeah. that. Well, yeah. It's um, totally different from just like floundering, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's true. I don't know that I got the message why those three were you know, related. But it's because um, it's, it's just a way of yeah. breaking it up into... There's a reason. It's breaking it up into different sections of the Bible. The Bible, if you read it from, from beginning to end, uh, it can be a little too much. But if you read different sections, like a little bit of the, you know, mm-hmm. the first five books of the, or from, yeah, books of the Bible. Like yes. And then there's wisdom literature. So they're going to give you a little bit of Psalms and Proverbs in there, and then a little bit of the gospel and the epistle. So it gives you, it's like having a meal. You don't need all one thing usually, you know. But if you are going to have a mono meal, then it should be the gospel. Um, Father, I have a question. Yeah. I might be jumping the gun with this a little bit before you get into typology, but it was a question I had to follow up with the idea of saints and demons and everything, which is um, to what extent can people who are not conscious believers and people of the nations be examples of Christ, do you think? So I think that in the Old Testament, with people like David, even though they were consciously and explicitly following God, they weren't necessarily aware of the example that they were being, that Christ was later in Christ. But does that same possibility of doing that expand out to people who aren't necessarily consciously Christians or consciously following God in that way. I don't know if I've worded that way. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, And... You never hear that question at the Protestant church. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it's either, you know, you're just, you're in or you're out. And I mean, we have a little bit of that, but it's always, you know... But it's a, we don't mean it the same way. Uh, and I would say uh, I would say yes. Um, I want to find a particular passage, but if I can't find it really quickly, it will find you. Then it will find me. <laughs> That's right. That's very orthodox of you to say that. It just came to me. It's true. Where is the passage? Some of you guys are very, are sharp with your Bible. Where's the passage that says that there are those 
who, not having received the law, nature has become a law unto them. And through living a life in accordance with the law of nature, you know, so to speak, that they, they prove a faithfulness to God that even those who have received the law do not have. And they'll be judged according to that. Not according to, you know, what, not according to whether, whether they followed, you know, the, the Pentateuch and the Ten Commandments and stuff. It's in, it's in Romans 2. That's where I'm looking right now. Um, the people who are, if there's anyone listening to the recording, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be struggling with my pause here. If you read the life of Churchill, for example, he wasn't oh, I see. a believer, but there was many instances in his life that he was clearly plucked back Look. from the brink of death and delivered unto a certain purpose. And if he wasn't a believer, he wasn't orthodox, but then you can see that God was moving in his life for a specific purpose, for a specific time. And I can't... For me, it's hard to say, like, oh, he's condemned when yeah. he was so clearly being used for specific. Yes. Reasons. Okay. I see what you're saying. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make two points. One, the one that you're kind of interested in. If you read Romans two, um, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things that you're judging in other people. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So basically saying, just because you you know the truth doesn't save you. You don't get to wield the truth in judgment of other people if you're living in a way that's contrary to the truth that you claim. Again, because then you are claiming to possess the truth rather than being possessed by it. And then later he says, for all who have sinned without the law, and he's talking about the law that comes through the direct, like the knowledge of God, revealed to the people of Israel, particularly the Ten Commandments. But all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, so these would be like the non-Christians, the non, you know, you could even say now, the non-believers who do not have the law or maybe have never heard the gospel. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law in writing. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So that's a really powerful thing to say, and it's worth chewing on a little bit. That's in Romans 2, in your, in your New Testament of your Bible. So Romans 2 is a helpful chapter in that regard. So I wanted to mention that and then what you're saying. Um, 
I don't, so, like anyone who is, who is doing anything that is revealing what is, what is real and what is true and what is right is revealing God in some way. There's a simple phrase, um, all truth is God's truth. So, so like, there's a little popular bumper sticker. Be the change you want to see. Gandhi. And I wouldn't go, oh no, Gandhi, <laughs> don't quote Gandhi. Man, that's bummer. I wish I would have said that first or something like that. I mean, it's like, that's just universal wisdom. It could have been Darwin who said that. Darwin, Gandhi, Confucius, St. Paul. That's just universal wisdom. Live, live with integrity. So we don't need to feel threatened in any way. And I'm not saying that you are, but it's a point I want to make. And I think it's important that, that we don't need to feel threatened when there is a, a source of some, a, some truth that is spoken by someone who's you could say outside of the camp in a way, you know, but they're not orthodox. I'm not saying just because some who's popular these days, Joe Rogan. I don't know. I hear people mention him all the time, you know, so he might say something that's right. It doesn't mean you need to become a follower of him. You might just go, oh, he says a lot of random things, but he also says some things that are meaningful, too. You know what I mean? And does it mean that they're a tool of God? Does it mean, I would say in some way, all of us are a tool of God, so, but, but, but not, not simply because God grabs us out of, out of the shed and decides to use us for his purposes, but because we were created to live in accordance with God's purposes. And that desire, that inherent desire and identity that we have it does manifest in our lives when we're struggling to do what's right and what's true. And we get some things right and we get some things wrong. And when we get certain things right, it is bearing witness to what is true. Even if in the end, I end up rejecting God. Like, I mean, look at Judas was a follower of Christ and, and then he rejected God in the end, but not everything that he did was bad. You know what I mean? And so... There, there are some things that I would say are that fall within, we like the word mystery, but try not to overuse it. You know, the scheme or the mystery of God's providence, where I may not necessarily need to say, ah, he was being used by God right now. But there may not be any harm in saying that he was in somehow being used by God. Like Churchill, is that what you're saying? You know? Because, I don't know, God can speak through Balaam's ass. I mean, like, God can speak through me. I like to say, you know, I mean. Um, so I, I think what you want to do is you want to be able to identify that there's more to life and God's effect on the world and my limited perception of it, which operates in categories. Like a lot of people who convert to orthodoxy get really caught in this mentality, of, uh, like a black and white mentality, orthodox or not orthodox. And I would say to some extent that can be helpful, especially when, when you need to only drink milk 
to use St. Paul's language, like as a child, you know, we have to be very careful. And you can't, there's, there's no value in you trying to find, to find God in um, the, the writings of Satanists right now. Just to see if you can find any indication of God there. Right now, you need to find God where he's presenting himself to you very clearly. But without condemning other people to hell, because that's not, that's not your role in anyone's life. And in fact, we would even say, we would say that God doesn't necessarily condemn people to hell, but we condemn ourselves to hell. And it's not for us to make that determination as to whether or not someone will be in heaven or in hell. The church does make very clear statements, though, about uh, like on the basis of particular actions, like those who have who have been proponents of heresy, they have been separated from the church who refused to be corrected. But um, an- another funny example is like, th- have you ever heard of Origen? Origen is like one of the, the, the most profound early biblical scholars. And virtually all of the fathers base bi- their biblical scholarship on the writings of Origen and draw heavily from him. But he fell into a heresy at the end of his life, and so he's not considered orthodox. But that doesn't mean that God was not using him in some way or at work in his life. And we don't need to come to a conclusion ourselves about the, the ultimate state that he's left in. Or even Tertullian, who he quoted during the homily. Well, oh, Tertullian. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know he's, too, he's easy to quote from. But um, yeah, you're right. I think there's an idea, too, that at least in the evangelical tradition I was raised, is very much everyone's saved in this camp, everyone else is yeah. lost. But there's kind of a thought that I came to over time, which is that more or less going with what you're saying, that only Christ is the one who is to judge. So to claim that you know what Christ is going to do in judgment is a, um, a statement of certainty that you have no power to make on your own. Um, I would agree with you. It's playing God, we would say. Now, here's the thing in this regard. It's not the same as confusing ourselves into thinking that there's not a difference between right and wrong. It's not an all or nothing thing. You know, you think that that quote from Gandhi is really helpful, and so what, do you think everyone's going to get to heaven now or something? No. I'm not saying anything. I'm not God. One of my favorite uh, existential conclusions that I had to come to (laughs) myself, and I hope that we all do, is I'm not God, and I don't have to be, and I better not pretend to be. Now, I was created to be in the image of God, but I wasn't created to be conflated with God. I was trying to find a little quote by St. Theophon, and I thought I added it to... I've got... document that just has like 30 pages of quotes that I've been putting together over the years. Uh, But I couldn't find this one. But someone asks St. Theophon the Recluse, a 19th century saint of the Russian Orthodox Church, basically, what about the Protestants? You know, 
What about them? And he he says, what God wants to do with them is between them and God. But as for us, we need to focus on our, you need to focus on yourself and your own salvation. Because you have a lot more at stake having been initiated in the faith and you'll be held to a greater account if you lose that faith that God has given you. So he basically says, you know, take responsibility for what's been given you rather than worrying about another person. And then one of the things that I like to emphasize again and again and again is if you're concerned about the spiritual state or well-being of another person and not just a people group or something like that, but another person, then get to know them and understand where they're coming from and invest in that relationship. And then your opinion may matter in that person's life. But just like anyone with free will, they have the absolute right to reject your opinion, even if you love them very much. Because Christians don't love people in order to convert them into being like us. You know what I mean? Putting a notch on our belt. Like that's not, that is not what this is about. Um, it, it is about loving people because we have the freedom and the ability to, to love them with the love with which we have been loved. And we don't love other people in order to get a result out of them. We don't love them to hear them say thank you. We don't love them to, to hear them say, you're really good at loving. What a great, you know, lovely person you are. We don't love them in order to say, oh, I now believe in God because of you. You know, we just get to participate in the work that God is doing in people's lives. And let every once in a while, he, he lets us see a little bit of the fruit, you know, of the harvest that that is uh, taking place. But there's so much more going on than can be perceived by our our small, limited perception, you could say. So let's talk a little bit about typology. How are we doing time? Yeah, we still got time. We're doing pretty, doing, doing pretty good time-wise. Yes? Oh, can you answer the question real quick in the chat from Candace? Uh, I, I don't know. Let me see, chat. Can you repeat the title of the book? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. By Father Stephen Freeman. It's called... Something like life in a single story universe, everywhere present. Life in a oh a one story universe, but okay. So Candace, the book is called Everywhere Present by Father Stephen Freeman. That's a good question. Thank you. I don't see these chats on my iPad, so if you ever have a question like that, you can uh, yeah just draw my attention to it. And our men's group read, read it several years ago. So let's talk a little more about uh, biblical study and focusing on what's called typology. We've spoken of certain Old Testament persons and events as being types of something revealed in the New Testament. We saw that three angels 
Do you remember this when we talked about the Trinity? We saw that the three angels who visited Abraham were a type of the Holy Trinity. We also noted that the exodus of the Jews from Egypt was a type, an image or a foreshadowing of the deliverance of mankind from sin by the blood of Christ. But what exactly is a type? And why does the church interpret scriptures in this way? Typology is a method of biblical interpretation whereby certain persons or events, usually in the Old Testament, are seen as signs or foreshadowings of either heavenly realities or future events. This method of interpretation was employed by Christ himself when he cited Jonah's three-day sojourn in the belly of a great fish as a sign of his own three-day burial, Matthew 12. In the book of Hebrews, the priest Melchizedek, to whom Abraham offered a tenth of his goods, is cited as a type of Christ, the great high priest of our salvation. Typology is very similar to the literary technique of foreshadowing. Let us suppose that the author of a novel has his main character die in the final chapter by being hit by a car on a deserted country road. Let us also suppose that in an earlier chapter, the main character comes upon a dead animal, obviously hit by a car on a deserted country road, and that in order to avoid the animal, he swerves off the road and damages his car. Because of this minor accident, he misses an important meeting and the course of his life is altered. The dead animal in the road has a specific function in the development of the plot up to that point. We might have no reason to suspect that the animal carcass has any other meaning. When, however, we read the last chapter and learn that the main character is killed by being hit by a car on a deserted country road, we think back to the dead animal in the earlier chapter. The author could have used any excuse to keep the main character from getting to his meeting. His car could have simply broken down. He could have had a minor accident with another car at a busy intersection, or he could have swerved to miss a large tree limb in the middle of the road. Instead, the author chose to foreshadow the death of the main character by using an animal that also had been hit by a car. While the actual text of the Bible was written by men, the true author of the story is God himself. Indeed, he is both the author and the main character. Throughout the history of Israel, God was preparing Israel and the world for the coming of his son. When the son was finally revealed in human flesh, the eternal significance of the history of Israel came to light. The Jews whom Moses led out of Egypt had no indication that their exodus meant anything more than their escape from physical bondage. So to to look at it, is not to discount the historical reality. That's important. It's not to say that it didn't really happen, but to say that what happened in the past was was actually brought to its fulfillment or completion later. So, however, its real significance or ultimate significance, you could say, was not understood until the coming of Christ, who delivered all mankind from the bondage of sin and death through the shedding of his own blood. The church interprets all of the Holy Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, in the light of Christ. And typology is the primary method used. Two points need to be clarified, however. First, because God is both author and main character, the types do more than simply foreshadow. 
In some way, they actually participate in the event being typified. Thus, when Abraham encountered the three angels, he was actually encountering in a limited way the Holy Trinity. When Israel escaped from Egypt, she was participating again in a very limited way in the deliverance of Christ. And finally, we must understand that typology is different from allegory. Allegory is a method of interpretation also used by the apostles of the church and the church fathers, whereby a moral or philosophical point is being extracted from a story without regard to its literal meaning. These two types of interpretation are not mutually exclusive. The fathers teach us that a passage may have literal, typological, and allegorical meaning at the same time. For example, the story of the Exodus refers to the literal deliverage, excuse me, refers to the literal deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It's also a type of the deliverance wrought by Christ on the cross, another historical event. And finally, it may also be interpreted allegorically as the deliverance of the soul from sin. This latter method is used frequently during Great Lent when the hymnographers invite us to put ourselves in the place of Old Testament characters and see their struggles as an allegory of our own personal spiritual journey. What's the, uh, do any of you know which of the, the hymns of the church that we do in Great Lent or a collection of hymns, you could say, uh, mostly employs this, this use of allegory? Was anyone around during Great Lent? There is, yeah. Which one? There's one in particular I'm thinking of. We do it during the first week of Great Lent, and then we do it in full. Yeah, the Canon of St. Andrew. The Canon of St. Andrew of Crete, also known as the Canon of Repentance. I don't know if I have the full text of this posted on our uh, on our website. But it is... Uh, it is actually, if you, if you read through the canon of St. Andrew, it will be a, a lesson to you in how the Orthodox approach biblical interpretation. It'll be quite a lesson. And basically, it basically takes the person who is reading it and puts them in the place of all of the characters of the Old Testament. I mean, there are just hundreds of references to different people throughout the Old Testament and leading up to the New. And it says things like Adam, you know, Adam fell from of old by being tempted by Eve who fell into delusion through the, the guile of the serpent. And then I'm just making this up, by the way. So, you know, I'm not saying it from memory, but this is the type of thing it will say. And it will say, and I am Adam who has fallen into that temptation. And I have united myself with Eve in her enticement by the devil or something like that. You know, and it, so it says this person did, did this and did that. And I am that person. And it doesn't mean that, you know, Adam and Eve didn't exist or that Moses didn't exist or David or whoever. But it means that the very things that they that they experienced are the very things that we experience. 
the very temptations that Adam and Eve experienced, temptation and fall, leading one another into delusion and blaming one another. That's not just the fall of Adam and Eve way back then. That's the experience that I have too, presently and in my life. I was telling a a couple that was having their marriage crowning. We have a, they were already married. Were they married? They were already married outside of the church, but we did a what's called a crowning ceremony when they became Orthodox. And I was feeling a little inspired, you know, by the by the the way the church approaches uh, such events and teachings. And I said to them. You are Abraham and Sarah. You are Moses and Zipporah. You are Joachim and Anna. You are Zechariah and Elizabeth. You are because you're called like them to do God's will. Not just to look at them as examples, but to be what they are while being uniquely who you are. You know, something like that. But there's a direct correlation. And like I said today in the homily, it's, it's not that the saints did it so that we don't have to. And so the same, the same struggle that St. Herman of Alaska, St. John of Kronstadt, St. Uh, Bridget of Kildare, St. Cassiani, that I, is the same struggle that I struggle with. It's not just their struggle, although um, each one... Uh, experiences it, you could say, somewhat uniquely. But it's it's the same but different. You know, we're united to them uh, rather than being distinct from them. And uh, so you you can see that that uh, type of, that approach to the reading of the scripture throughout uh, the writings of the church, her hymns and comment, commentaries and the writings of the fathers. Because... What good is historical knowledge? What good is knowing the names of the people of the Old Testament if you haven't learned something from it? You know what I mean? Or what good is reading history just because you're into the drama and the intrigue of it rather than reading it and learning something from the experiences of other people? I mean, what's the classic parental advice? I learned it the hard way. I don't want you to repeat the same mistakes that I've made. Ironically, a lot of us repeat the same mistakes that our parents made. The same mistakes, you know. But we're trying to acquire wisdom through the reading of the scriptures, through the readings of the lives of the saints. And so we read it as, 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 as if it were written to apply directly to me in some way. Um, but that's not the same as, as reading into the scripture and applying your own meaning to it, your own. Like, there are, there are two words. I don't know if I have much time. I don't want to. Oh, good. I still have a little more time. There are two words that are important uh, in biblical studies. One is exegesis. 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 Okay. And then another one is eisegesis. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little um, technical for you guys, but exegesis is like to, to pull the meaning out of something. 
I went through a huge change in my in my personal Christian walk when I started reading the Bible when I was a, maybe a young a young adult. Um, I started reading the Bible to hear what it actually had to say, rather than trying to find what I was looking for in. And exegesis is drawing out the meaning that is there, the truth that is being spoken. Eisegesis is reading into or projecting your your interpretation onto the scripture and therefore using it as kind of a personal self-help tool, you know, finding finding what you want. That is uh, abuse of the scripture because anyone can use the Bible to prove virtually any point they want. You know, they could. Um, And so... This is the, that going back to exegesis is drawing out the meaning so that we can be changed and read by the scriptures rather than imposing our presuppositions on the text itself, especially our personal, you know, personal ones. The Greek, yeah. So what else? No, I think that's all I wanted to say. I will try to find that canon of St. Andrew and I'll see if I can post that as a resource. For you. Oh, uh, Father. Yes. You were also going to send out the kneeling prayers. Oh, yeah. And I need to send out the kneeling prayers to you all. If I ever tell you that I'm going to do something and I don't do it, can you remind me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind. You can... Text me or email me or something, and that's helpful. But yeah, the Canon of St. Andrew of Crete, or also known as the Canon of Repentance, is a, a really helpful tool and lesson in approaching Orthodox interpretation of Scripture. And then there's also a little, a little article. I think we have it in the Narthex, but it's also in the beginning of the Orthodox Study Bible written by Metropolitan Callistos Ware. I think it's called How to Read the Bible. It's very simple. But it, if, uh, if you have a, a relationship with the scripture that's still being uh, defined, you know, you're working on that, trying to figure that out, I would encourage you to, uh, to don't avoid the relationship, but develop it little by little too. The Bible is totally overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's huge. It's a huge library in and of itself. But there are lots and lots of resources that can help you overcome your, the, the daunting uh, relationship that we have with the Bible um, and approach it realistically in a way that is you know, beneficial to us. And as you know, we don't just hold up the, the Bible and venerate it, but... We read it, and we interpret it, and more importantly, we try to live it, you know. Live the truths that are being spoken through the Holy Scriptures. So, we'll end there on time. Early, actually, today. Three minutes early. Go get an ice cream cone, because Father Jeremiah finished early. Thank you guys for being here today through the prayers of our Holy Fathers. Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you.